This is my favorite season. Looks beautiful in here. For those who decorated, thank you. It looks great. We, my wife decided to get the tree early this year because, because Thanksgiving was late, so we had to get it early. But it was, it's been nice. So we had the, have the tree set up in the house, and we always get a real tree. And we decided to, this is the first time, well, not the first time, but the first time recently we had a fireplace. So we got the tree set up, actually got the trains underneath the tree running, and Gabriel has not destroyed them yet, which I'm very thankful for. And the, we, I decided, hey, we got some wood. My brother gave us some wood, and I know John gave us some wood. So I'm like, let's, let's go ahead and uh, light a fire. How great would that be? Very Christmassy. So we, we have the tree lit up, the, the fire going in about five minutes, every single fire alarm in the house going, and just sitting there thinking, wow, just, I mean, my wife said, you were so relaxed. You were just sitting there staring at the fire, and then the fire alarm goes off, and it's just gone. And then, so now I have to figure out, you know, what happened, and can we do this again? But... It was completely enjoyable for those, what, 10 minutes? 10 minutes. So, but I do love this time. Advent is my favorite time of the year, partly because I just love the cold, partly because I just love the, the lights, the, the beauty of it, and the reminder of what it's about. Advent is a celebration of Christ's coming, and it's also looking forward to his coming again. Now, what greater thing can we do at the first week of Advent than to celebrate the coming of Christ by remembering his death. What greater thing can we do than remember his death as we celebrate his coming? Jesus Christ, our Savior, came to die. He was born to die purposefully. Another small thing, we are going to be going to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. Another small thing that struck me before we actually get into the passage is just the small providences of God if you guys remember a few days, a few months back, that we had a power outage. See, me, I'm not smart enough to actually plan the sermon on the Lord's Supper on the actual day we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. I'm not intelligent enough for, to, to put that together, but when we miss that week with the power outage, guess what happens? In God's small providence... He brought it together where the same day I'm preaching from 1 Corinthians 11 is the very day we are taking the Lord's Supper. So what a joy it is to not only hear from God's word about the Lord's Supper, but to actually take it as well. So 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. Let me read from God's holy word before we get into it. God's word says, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 11, Paul writes, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? 
Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. It's God's holy word for his holy people. Probably one of my favorite church moments, church experiences, for lack of a better word, took place in college. I remember visiting this church one time. It was called the Worship Center. It, was, it took charismatic theology and put it on 10. So there was, this, there was dancing in the aisles. There were ecstatic screams. There were outbursts of the spirit. There was energetic music. I, I do recall I never saw any flaming tongues of fire resting on anyone. So it wasn't any acts to. Actually, that would have been really amazing. Like that would have taken it over the top to have seen that. No acts to. My favorite part was the drummer. This drummer was great. Let me tell you about him. He was introduced to the congregation, and this was in place of the sermon. He was introduced to the congregation as the drum-beaten, tongue-speaking brother. Now, I'm going to expect you next service to... No. Drum-beaten, tongue-speaking brother. He had no idea how to drum. He had not a clue. For 30 minutes, at least it felt like 30 minutes, maybe it wasn't. For 30 minutes, he got up there and banged and banged and banged. And the whole time he's banging on the drums without any idea of what rhythm actually is, he was speaking in tongues. Now this isn't, I would define tongues biblically as known languages. He was up there speaking gobbledygook. He was up there just whatever, blah, 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 for 30 minutes as he played the drums and had no clue what he was doing. 30 minutes. That was memorable. Something like that sticks with you. The people loved it. The, the spirit was apparently slaying people left and right, and I'm there remembering, like, what is going on? I'm, I'm overwhelmed trying to process all this, and, like, what in the world am I witnessing? 
But I've also been in churches that are very much the opposite. Churches that are so dreary, they're nap-inducing. The endless repetition of trite and meaningless music. The sleepy monotone of the preacher that puts everyone to bed. How in the world... It it, it amazes me that we can take the most remarkable, shocking, scandalous, wonderful story there is and turn it into a bedtime nursery rhyme to lull the people of God to sleep. So what do these two very different types of churches have to do with one another? Have to do with what we're going to talk about this morning. Here's one of the overarching points this morning. There's a right way to worship And there is a wrong way to worship. We, as the people of God, must worship according to God's word and God's ways. He has given us clear directions of how we are to worship him. The problem with these two types of churches is that they both in various ways fail to worship the Lord according to his word. They are worshiping selfishly and disorderly. And this morning we'll see that the Corinthians were no different. They were worshiping disorderly. They're failing to worship God according to his word and his ways. They were worshiping him sinfully. Their worship was disordered. Their worship was selfish. When they ate and drank the Lord's Supper, a very time when they're supposed to corporately worship together, to come together united, they're divided. They're failing to worship to give glory to God and in their worship, they're failing to give, seek the good of others, as we saw last week. So for us to get a better grasp of how we're to worship God this morning, I want us to focus on three aspects of worship. The first one, in verses 17 to 22, we'll look at the Corinthians' disordered worship. 17 to 22, they were disordered in their worship, what was taking place in the Corinthian church. The second point is this, that what is God's prescription for God-glorifying worship for, we'll call this ordered worship. In verses 23 to 26, we have the disordered worship, 17 to 22, and then God's ordered worship in 23 to 26. And lastly, we'll look at the importance of examined worship, of worshiping heart with hearts truly focused on the glory of God and the good of others, verses 27 to 34. As we walk through these three aspects, disordered worship, ordered worship, examined worship, keep this in mind. We as God's people must worship him according to his word and his ways. We must worship God according to his word, his ways, for his glory and for the good of others. Let's begin by looking at verses 17 to 22 the disordered worship. The Corinthians' worship was in disarray. It was disordered worship. They had the, the drum-beaten, tongue-speaking brother had nothing on their disordered worship. It was a travesty. Their worship was a travesty. Look at verses 17 and 22 again. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. This is what was happening as the Corinthians gathered together for worship. Paul is incapable of commending them. When they come together, it should have been for the better. 
When we gather together as a church, it should be for the better, for all of our better, for the glory of God, for the good of others. And here it is, Paul says, for the worse. I can't imagine how many churches Paul would give the same criticism and reprimand to today. You get together, you gather, but it's for the worse. The Corinthians gather together, and this is what's interesting about this passage. They are united together, but they're divided. They gather together as one people, but they are acting in division. When you come together as the church, you're supposed to be united. You're supposed to reflect the triune God, united as Father, Son, Spirit. This is what Jesus prays for us today. In John 17, that they, Father, may be one just as you and I are one. And here the Corinthians are united among the very table that's supposed to bring them together, but they're full of division. We already saw back in chapter 1 they're divided over leadership. Here, what seems to be the case is that the rich in the church are taking the food and celebrating and feasting, and the poor are left with nothing. And the church is divided among socioeconomic lines. And those with are celebrating. And those who have not are ashamed and dishonored. It's not just division that's infiltrated the Corinthian church. It's disorder reigns. They're failing to live according to God's prescribed way of worship. They're failing to glorify God and seek the good of others when they worship the Lord. They were practicing outwardly the Lord's Supper. But Paul is able to step back and tell them that, you know what? You perfectly executed this meal. It was perfect the way you did it. But yet you failed to do it with true hearts. And he even says, that's not the Lord's Supper. You can get all the traditions right about your worship and you can fail to worship. Paul's furious. What? Do you have, not have houses to eat and drink in? And acting this way and putting the poor to the side and not caring for them and being selfish, you are not worshiping. You think you are worshiping. You are doing all the rituals of worship, but you're failing to worship. Go eat at home. By acting this way, by despising the poor, you are actually despising the body of Christ, the church of God. You're failing to glorify God. You're failing to seek the good of others. The exact same thing Paul said just last week. We're to glorify God and seek the good of others. Here, Paul is applying that same line of thinking we saw last week in chapter 10 to worship. How are we to worship? To seek the glory of God and to do it for the good of others. Paul is applying the same line of thinking to worship. So when we come together this morning, as we will do, and eat the Lord's Supper together, share in that we are to do it for the glory of God, but also do it in such a way that's for the good of others. The Corinthians were not doing that. I like how one commentator says this. He says, The love of Christ, which they claim to remember at the supper, must show up in their actions. But the supper had been turned upside down so that it had become an occasion for selfish grasping instead of selfless giving. Are we going to do that this, this morning? Selfish grasping or selfless giving? 
Their gathered worship of the Corinthian church failed to give glory to God because it failed to seek the good of others. Take note of this, church. They were worshiping outwardly correctly. Their rituals, their traditions, their sanctuary, if you want to take it today, looked beautiful. The Lord's Supper was adorned, perfectly set out. Their trees were decorated. Their lights were beautiful. Everything was right on the outside. It looked great. But what does Paul say? You're not worshiping. Your hearts are not worshiping. We could have walked in the Corinthian church and everything would have looked in order, but the problem went deeper. The problems were sinfulness, selfishness, arrogance, and pride. The wealthier Corinthians were failing to care for, show love and honor to the poorer Christians. Their traditions and rituals were right, but their hearts were far from the Lord. Paul says what you're doing that, that morning was not the Lord's Supper. Isaiah 58 comes to mind in this passage. God in Isaiah 58 reprimands his people because they were fasting. In actuality, they were doing as they pleased. They were exploiting those under them. Their fasting was ending actually in arguments and fistfights. God tells them through Isaiah, you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. We cannot worship today and expect our voice to be heard on high unless we are united, seeking the glory of God and the good of others. Paul says, what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. And the Lord asks in Isaiah 58, is that what you call a fast? Is that how you think worship truly is? And he says in Isaiah 58, you can look there later if you want. No, the Lord says, a true fast is loosening the chains of injustice, untying the cords of slavery, setting the oppressed free. It is sharing your food with the hungry, providing shelter for the poor and the homeless. It is clothing the naked, not turning away for those in desperate need. This is worship that glorifies God. You can do all your fasts all you want, but if you're not untying and loosing the chains of justice, then you are not worshiping. The Corinthians were failing to worship even though they did all the rituals of worship because they were not caring for the poor in their midst. I hope and pray that we are not a church like that. That we are a church that can truly worship because we are seeking the glory of God and the good of others. Their worship, the Corinthian church, was divisive. It was disordered and it was selfish. It was a dishonor to God and it was a humiliation to those in their midst. So Paul turns to the word of God and he says this my brothers and sisters, is what ordered worship looks like. Look at verses 23 to 26. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul begins by going back to the basics. 
This is what I have received from the Lord. This actually, this language actually, Paul here parallels closely Luke 22, verses 14 to 23. This is what he delivers to them. This is what they are to remember. This is how they are to gather together to worship, to take the Lord's Supper together with unity, with order, and with an outwardly selfless focus. This is, after all, Worship that follows in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way we are to worship according to God's word and his ways, following after the pattern of Christ. On the very night when our Savior was betrayed. That phrase always stops me in the tracks. The very night our Savior was betrayed, where he was handed over, that very dark night, the night where he knew what was about to unfold, the night where he knew all his ministry of three years would seem to be for naught, where all of his followers would scatter and run away, that night where he knew what he would face, not only the abandonment of his closest followers, but the rejection of his father as the wrath of God is poured out upon him on the cross. That night when Christ is betrayed says, I want you to continue doing this in remembrance of me. This is my body, which is for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, this is an act of worship in remembrance of me. This is what I love about the Lord's Supper. This is why I would love to um, do it every week. Because the great thing about, you actually have to work at doing the Lord's Supper to avoid the gospel. You actually have to work to not mention the gospel in the Lord's Supper. Because what is it? It is the body of Christ. His blood shed, poured out for sinners. That is the beauty. That even if I may fail to preach the gospel, here it is before us. The good news on full display, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And what is it? Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you do what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you realize that what we are about ready to do in a few minutes is a corporate proclamation? You are all going to preach in a few moments. As we take the Lord's Supper, we are going to proclaim together, to preach together, to speak God's good words together of what he has done for us with the hope, the expectation, the longing of his coming again. When we take the Lord's Supper together, we give glory to God. We seek the good of others and we proclaim the sacrificial death the redeeming death, the sacrifice of Christ, his blood shed for us, poured out for sinners who were in rebellion against him. And our worship unites us together around the broken body and the bloody cross. The story of the old rugged cross in Corinth, there is division. And Paul says there cannot be division at the foot of the cross. Brothers and sisters, this morning as we take the Lord's Supper, there is no room for division here at the foot of the cross. Because cross, 
The cross unites us together. We remember the body and blood, and it brings us together. Hebrews tells us, exhorts us, consider how we spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We are to be an encouragement to one another. This we must do because the day of the Lord is approaching. What Hebrews is saying is that the day is short. When you worship together, encourage one another, stir one another up, consider how to do it. This morning, did any of you get up this morning and say, how how can I stir up my brothers and sisters in Christ? How can I stir them up for good works? How can I stir them up to encourage them this morning? That's how we should approach worship. That's how we truly worship. And we do this until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And even now, as we celebrate his first coming, we look towards the second. And we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Lastly, we worshiping God according to his word and according to his ways requires that we examine our hearts. Requires that we examine ourselves and our worship. Look at verses 27 to 34. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Why should we examine ourselves for worship? I think we can take this and apply it more to just the Lord's Supper. We should examine ourselves for worship in general. See, some Corinthians were participating in the Lord's Supper in what Paul calls an unworthy manner. They were guilty of the body and blood of Christ. Now there's some debate as to what this means. I think the best way to understand is that they were drinking in an unworthy manner because they were not truly believers in Christ. So as they were partaking of the Lord's Supper as unbelievers, it was as if they were guilty of the very murder of Christ. They became even weak and ill and died. So here's what Paul's application is encourages the church in Corinth, encourages us to examine ourselves, consider your calling, ponder your salvation, to judge yourselves according to the gospel. In Paul's second letter to Corinth, he follows up and says, examine yourselves in 2 Corinthians 13.5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize, Paul says, that Christ Jesus is in you Unless, of course, Paul says, you fail the test. So church, this morning as we come to worship, not only every Sunday morning, but particularly when we take the Lord's Supper, examine yourselves. Do you, is Christ Jesus in you or have you failed the test? Well, how do I do that, Pastor? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And I'm not talking about countless years ago when you may have walked an aisle or raised your hand in a church. Do you believe in Jesus Christ today? 
Do you believe in Jesus Christ now? Do you believe that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins? Do you believe that you once walked according to the sinful ways of this world? Do you once believe that you were in part of the kingdom of darkness? Do you believe that God, being rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ Jesus? Do you believe that he is the life-giving Savior of the world? Do you believe in the free mercy and forgiveness found in Christ that though your sins may be as scarlet, he shall wash them as white as snow, that though your sins are great, he is a greater Savior, that he takes those sins as far as the east is from the west. They are gone. Do you believe that this morning? That's what it means to examine yourselves, to test yourselves. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, Examine yourself. Let me encourage you to do that. Test yourself. Hold yourself up to the Word of God. Consider how you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. And let me say this too. For those who think they are believed because they prayed a prayer long ago, again, it's not about what you did 20 years ago. It's what you believe today. If you don't believe Christ today, you're not safe because you prayed 10 years ago. You're supposed to believe today. Believing is always an active in Scripture. Believe, believe, believe today. If you don't believe, why not? Test yourself. Hold yourself up to the truth of Scripture. Consider the weight of your sin. Ask God to show you your sin. Feel the weight of your sin. How you are dead in trespasses and sins. Feel the wrath of God's holiness, His pure, perfect righteousness. And know that you are judged under that wrath. And that you, the only way out, is a Savior. See your need for Christ, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Consider the blood-bought forgiveness of the cross. Cry out, what must I do to be saved? And find redemption in Jesus. For those who don't believe today, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and Scripture promises and you will be saved. Today, is the day of salvation. Place your faith and trust in the only one who saves. Examination is for those who unbelieve, but examination is also for unbelievers. Or I'm sorry, for believers. We've already have Jesus Christ in us, but we must continually go back to the cross. As we were talking about in the membership class, the cross is not just a door, the gospel is not just a door you enter into once and then you're done with it. The gospel, the good news of Christ is for me today, for you who believe today. The gospel is for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So true examination, there's, this is the way I tend to do it. Melancholy. Introspective. A lot of churches do this today, especially for the Lord's Supper. We have this melancholic introspection. I think many churches turn the Lord's, the celebration of the Lord's Supper into a funeral dirge. So we're going to sit here this morning and be weighed down by our sins. What are we celebrating? That our sins are no more. That our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. So, yes, we are sinful. We remain sinful. 
sinners, but we are no longer slaves to sin. So there is a level of introspection. I think a healthy introspection each time we come and take the Lord's Supper. But each time we worship, we do come face to face with our sins and God's holiness. But that should not leave us in our sins and God's holiness. That should drive us to God's forgiveness. Your sin is great. God's holiness is amazingly powerful and terrifying. But Christ, our Savior, is sweet and beautiful and precious and wonderful. And he came, as we celebrate beginning this morning, to die so that you may have life. So should this be a funeral dirge? This should be a time of celebration, of ecstatic worship, that we are loved by a God who loved us so much that he sent his beloved son who bled and died in our place. A God who loves us so much that he poured out his hatred, his wrath, and his anger for our sin upon his beloved son. A God who loves us so much that he now sees us through blood-stained glasses. He sees us through the cross. A God who removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. A God who loves us and sees us no longer as wayward, rebellious children that we once were, but now as beloved, adopted children. If you believe in Christ this morning, you are no longer orphans. You are children of the King. So yes, we come to the Lord's Supper with a degree of heaviness because it is our sin that required the body of Christ to be broken. It was our sin that caused his blood to be shed, but he did that willingly. And now we experience the joy, the ecstatic worship by partaking of the Lord's Supper, remembering that we have come now face to face with the broken and bloodied body of our Lord and Savior, the one who stood in our place the one who took the wrath of God that we deserve, the one who forgave our sins, the spotless Lamb of God who brought us, redeemed us from up out of the pit of slavery. The Lord's Supper is a time of celebration, exaltation, and glorious praise to our merciful God. Brothers and sisters, this morning, we cannot worship in an unworthy, disordered manner. We must worship according to God's word. In his ways. Examine ourselves. Take the time this morning to examine yourselves. Do I truly believe what I say I believe in? And remind yourselves of the beauty of the gospel that you were once dead in trespasses and sins, but have been made alive together with Christ. And let us come with thankful hearts of gratitude because of the redemption that we have received through the broken body and bloody cross of Christ. Let's pray together before the Lord's Supper. O good of the highest heaven, occupy the throne of our hearts. Take full possession and reign supreme. Lay low every rebel lust. Let no vile passion of ours resist your holy war. Make your mighty power known and make us your people forever. You are worthy to be praised. 
with our entire breath, loved with our entire heart, and served with our entire life. You have loved us, called us, received us, purchased, washed, favored, clothed, and adorned us when we were worthless, vile, soiled, and polluted. When we were once dead in our iniquities, having no eyes to see, no ears to hear you, no mind to know you, but your spirit enlivened us. You have brought us into a new world as new creatures. You have given us spiritual life and sight. You have opened your word to us as light, guide, and solace, and our joy. Your presence is to us a treasure of unending peace. Nothing can separate us from your love. You have drawn us up to you, and you forgive us because of the cross. Help us to walk worthy of your love. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth. Help us to worship you according to your word and your ways. May we live such lives that glorify you and seek the good of others And Father, may we be found as salt and light of the earth, a blessing to all. In the name of our beautiful Savior Christ, amen.